at the outset, let me say I've caught this cold all over again, and I thought I licked it. It's back for round two. So let me just say ahead of time, a categorical excuse me, so that when I cough, I won't have to stop and say it again. We'll just keep moving on. I can't afford to miss any more Sundays. Uh, They'll dock my pay for one thing. Um, (laughs) Secondly, if we don't press through, you know, this section of Revelation, we're never going to get out of the tribulation. (laughs) So so we got to keep moving. So you bear with me and I'll press on, okay? Okay? Thank you. In one of my recent trips to um, Chick-fil-A, I thought I was going to say the mission field, didn't you? These trips are part of a well-balanced life, uh, I believe. I go there with the added incentive of that newspaper, you know, that's free. You can eat it. You can not eat it. You read it while you eat those uh, nuggets and sweet tea. And, and if you got a little extra cash, a brownie with chocolate icing, right? Anybody with me out there? I come up here to preach, and I got sitting on my pulpit a Chick-fil-A cow... <laughs> And three coupons. You know, I, I love it when the body applies my sermons in such a wonderful way. But I don't think I could preach with a beanie baby on my pulpit, so I'm going to put that in there. Well, oh, a few weeks ago I was there and reading the USA Today newspaper, and these headlines caught my attention. Bogus money goes mainstream. The article went on... Uh, to reveal how the economic downturn has created a whole new meaning for the words photocopy. Arrests for making counterfeit money, it said, have reached an all-time high. People are now evidently trying to pass off fake bills to pay for everyday expenses. In fact, if you can imagine it, this article said that in 2008 alone, some $64 million of counterfeit money was passed off in this country. The article read, counterfeiters have taken advantage of technological advances in scanners and printers. Christmas, which is usually the worst time of the year, one federal agent reported, now is ongoing. The cashiers are overwhelmed. The article reported this problem is well beyond the Christmas season. One secret service agent who was interviewed said that this problem is no longer even the action of the criminal element in society like drug dealers and gangsters. This is now a mainstream problem. This is your neighbor next door. People have now been caught trying to use counterfeit $20 bills to buy pizza and a tank of gasoline. One 15-year-old student in Michigan photographed currency on a scanner copier and tried to pass it off at his high school cafeteria. In one town in Georgia earlier this month, local banks found counterfeit 20s and $100 bills from respectable merchants. Authorities, in fact, from that same town in Georgia have already arrested one man in January of 2009, catching him in the act as he printed bills from a scanner on his kitchen table. One lawman said, this is probably due to the economy, but I got a feeling there's a lot more going on that we haven't caught. Just imagine the implications of this. The character of our citizens can be bought off and excused by a downward economy. Difficult times have caused ordinary, for the most part, law-abiding citizens to photocopy a $20 bill 
and risk everything to pass it off. My father used to say to us boys as we were growing up, whenever somebody was caught stealing something, he'd comment that the amount stolen was too little, certainly, to sell out whether it was $100 or $1,000. He'd usually say something like this, my character is worth more than $100. Now from that perspective, imagine someone's character worth less than a pizza or a tank of gas or a a lunch in a school cafeteria. May I add a couple thousand dollars on a dishonest tax return. If troubled times can lead people to sell their conscience and their character, to create some counterfeit money, there's little wonder in my mind how the world one day during the dark days of the tribulation will sell out to a counterfeit Messiah. They will literally sell their soul to a counterfeit king. We've already been introduced in Revelation 13, and I invite you back there today, to the Antichrist. In the first few verses of Revelation 13, along with a look that we took at Daniel's prophecy, we have learned several things That this Antichrist will head up a revived Roman Empire, 10 European kingdoms, matching the vision of Daniel's image uh, with its 10 toes, signifying this 10 kingdom coalition which forms a one world government. We've also learned that the Antichrist will rise into power as a fairly insignificant European leader. Uh, Daniel calls him a little king that will rise up among them, Daniel 7, 8. That is a king among the European leaders who'll begin his rise to power as a fairly unimpressive, inauspicious leader. Daniel also informed us that the Antichrist will eventually rise to take the throne of that coalition, becoming the world's last Caesar. He will eventually force everybody to take his mark and his oath of loyalty The mark of the beast is described later in chapter 13, which we'll study closely in a later session. The Antichrist is the ultimate counterfeiter. Everything that God has done, just about, everything that Satan can counterfeit, he will counterfeit in and through this man's life with his counterfeit agenda. In fact, if you go through scripture and compare the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with the efforts of Satan to counterfeit him, it is, it is uncanny. It is amazing. Let me give you some comparisons. In fact, let me give you 19 of them in this introduction. All right, we're going to really move quickly. Number one, don't panic, by the way. This, this is on the web, colonial.org. Everything's there. So just sit back if you want and listen. Jesus Christ performs miracles, signs, and wonders in his ministry. And of course, the Antichrist will perform with the same power, or at least counterfeit power, signs and false wonders. Jesus Christ will appear in the millennial temple. The Antichrist will make his appearance in the tribulation temple. The apostle Paul, in fact, describes him as taking his seat in the temple, declaring himself worthy of worship in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Jesus Christ, thirdly, is the incarnation of God. He is God in the flesh, The Antichrist will claim to be God 
or at least the incarnation of God. 2 Thessalonians, again in chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus Christ is seen in Revelation 5 with his lineage. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. The Antichrist will have a mouth like a lion. Christ will make a peace covenant with Israel that will be enjoyed throughout the millennial reign. Ezekiel 37 informs us of that. The Antichrist will begin his claim as Messiah by offering Israel a peace covenant. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that in verse 27. Christ motivates, provides the incentive, causes worship for the one true and living God which he embodies in physical form. The Antichrist will actually encourage worship of the false god, Satan. Seventh, Christ's followers during the tribulation will be marked and sealed as his. And we've already studied that at length in Revelation 7. The Antichrist will seal his followers with his own mark on their forehead or their right hand. Revelation 13, verses 16 to 18. Christ has a worthy name. The Antichrist has blasphemous names. Christ is married to a virtuous bride. The Antichrist is betrothed to a vile harlot. Christ is crowned with many crowns. The Antichrist with ten. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. The Antichrist will call himself King in Daniel 11. Christ will sit on a throne. The Antichrist will sit on a throne, Revelation 16. Christ will ride a white horse when he returns, Revelation 19. The Antichrist rides on a white horse to begin his pseudo reign in Revelation verse 2 of chapter 6. Christ has an army, as does the Antichrist in Revelation 19. Christ died a violent death. The Antichrist dies a violent death, Revelation 13, verse 3. Christ is resurrected. The Antichrist is resurrected as well. We'll see that in a moment. Christ comes back to reign, as does the Antichrist come back to reign in Revelation 13, verse 3. Uh, The 18th comparison, Jesus Christ reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years during the millennial reign or kingdom. The Antichrist will reign as well from Jerusalem in his three and a half year worldwide kingdom. Finally, Christ is part of a holy trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Revelation 13 introduces us to an unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. In every way possible, Satan will attempt to counterfeit the true Messiah. One of my former seminary professors, J. Dwight Pentecost, summarized it well when he wrote, and I quote him, Satan is seeking to give the world a ruler in place of Christ who will be in opposition to Christ so that he can rule over the world instead of Christ. What is it that causes such profound deception? So much so that the world will follow this counterfeit Messiah. Primarily two things. The first we've already discussed, I'll review it. It's simply his management of peaceful reconciliation. We saw him fulfill the symbolism of the white horse. He came giving peace to Israel. He'll break that peace eventually in the mid part of the tribulation. But that's just a warm up. Not only will his management of of a peaceful reconciliation bring him to the attention of the world, but most impressively, secondly, his miracle of physical resurrection will sort of cement his rise to world power. No wonder they will turn to him in worship. 
No wonder their, their early excitement over him will turn to an exaltation of him as their crowned prince, their Messiah, their God. Let's take a closer look at that. Picking it up where we left off with verse 3 in Revelation chapter 13. John writes, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. This is the empire, one of the heads, one of the kings, rulers. And his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. A reference to that individual king we know as the Antichrist. Remember the title beast can refer to both the kingdom of the Antichrist and the Antichrist. It is used interchangeably. Because of that fact, there are some who believe here that the resurrection spoken of in verse 3 is not referring to the Antichrist, but to the resurrection of his kingdom, the reviving of that European world movement uh, Daniel speaks of as the revived Roman Empire. The major problem, as I have studied all of you, is that you have simple personal pronouns in the Greek language used for the wounding and dying of this one, which limits it to one king, not the entire kingdom. In fact, if you look down at verse 12 in Revelation 13, John writes of this first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Again, this is, this is personal. This is a personal event experienced by one of them. He's called here the first beast. And the first beast introduced to us in chapter 13 is the Antichrist. The second beast, which will be introduced to us later on in another study, is the false prophet. Evidently, at some point in, in the rise to power of this beast, the Antichrist, he is assassinated. Now the question obviously comes up, was he really dead? Well, if you look further at verse 14, the latter part where the false prophet You'll see he orders the world to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. At some point in his amazing rise to power, the Antichrist is assassinated by a wound to the head. We have no reason to believe that this is anything other than a literal application of the text. He is literally killed. He's literally brought back to life. It certainly raises some interesting questions. And again, let's go back to the first one. Are you sure he really died? Some believe he faked it. It was one of his lying wonders. Uh, I, along with other Bible teachers, believe the Antichrist actually physically died. In fact, it is one of the strongest claims of his to his rule as false messiah. The text in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, look back there again. It says, I, John says, I saw one as if it had been slain. Literally, the word is slaughtered. If you go back, in fact, hold your finger there and go back to chapter 5 of Revelation. You discover the English translation of the exact same Greek phrase, only now it is used of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. That doesn't mean that Christ faked it. It doesn't mean that it was sleight of hand. It doesn't mean that he didn't really die. What it means is he is standing as if slain. Literally, he's bearing the wounds of that dying event. And we know from his resurrection appearances, he retained some of the wounds of his crucifixion as evidences of the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. So that now is the exact same phrase used of 
this false Messiah who is as one having been slain or slaughtered. Evidently, you could, I guess, call this the 20th mark of his uh, false messiahship. He bears in his body, even after resurrected, some mark on his head to show that he was invincible, that he defeated death. It's only one more way he will masquerade as the Messiah. So the Antichrist slaughter, we have every reason to believe with the text of Scripture, was as real or will be as real as the Lamb's slaughter. The Antichrist isn't faking death. He's really dead. Now, you're saying at this point, Stephen, wait a second. Uh, Maybe that cold has influenced you a little too much. Too many medications. If you're saying what I think you're saying, that means the Antichrist has to be literally resurrected from the dead. Are you saying that Satan can resurrect someone from the dead? Great question. You're dismissed. Oh, well, wait a second here. Let, let Let me ask an answer first. A lesser question. Okay? It's this one. Can Satan perform miracles? The short answer is yes. Now just think back through scriptures that may come to your mind as they did to me as I thought through this. We know from scripture that Satan is given delegated, limited, miraculous power. He is on the leash of God. But that leash has allowed him delegated power. You remember how with God's permission... Satan was allowed to control the winds of nature, creating that cyclone that that, that slammed into the home where Job's children were feasting, and they died. He also was able to influence the minds of those pagan warriors so that they mounted up and attacked Job's servants, killing them. You may remember with further permission from God, Satan affected the body of Job, giving him the diseases that covered his body with sores and boils. That is significant, delegated power. Make no mistake about it. You may remember or recall the same thing occurring earlier, this demonstration of power in Exodus where Pharaoh's magicians are able to copy several of the miracles of Aaron and Moses. You remember they threw Aaron, uh, Aaron threw the rod down and it turned into a, a wiggling live serpent. Now, had I been Pharaoh, I would have climbed up on my throne and hollered. But what happened? By their dark arts, Pharaoh's magicians threw their rods down and they what? Turned into serpents as well. Never mind that, that Moses ate them up. But don't overlook the fact that those are real, wiggling, living snakes. He was also, Satan was through these magicians, able to match the miracle of turning water into blood. In Exodus chapter 7 verse 22. Which only further hardened the heart of unbelieving Pharaoh, which was one of God's purposes in displaying his power and his wrath. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ informs us that there will be false teachers who will one day stand before him, who during their lifetime, in the name of Jesus Christ, performed miracles, exercising demons, healing, prophesying. And as they stand before Christ, there is no word of, that was all fakery. No, it was simply you were empowered by someone else. Why? Because I never, what? knew you. 
Just as Jesus Christ and the apostles to whom he delegated power could raise people from the dead. You remember Peter did, as well as Paul, authenticating the claims that they gave through the gospel. So also then God will allow this delegated authority to Satan who will empower, be empowered to raise from the dead. The Antichrist in that moment will cement the moment of the false Messiah. And he will lead, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the whole world astray. God will, he wrote, send such strong delusion so that the world will believe the lie. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. I believe, personally, that this resurrection of the Antichrist is a major part of Paul's words being explained and fulfilled. He who was dead has now come back to life. This helps us understand how the world at this moment will consolidate not just their wonder at him, but their worship of him. He is, he must be God. He has power over the grave and over death. God will allow, I believe, Satan to perform this miracle and the world will fall at the Antichrist's feet. In my research, I uncovered a popular belief in the 50s, and I was born in 58, and so I was too young to catch this. Some of you who are older than I am probably, or you may remember that there was quite a movement that believed that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist. And I uncovered the runaway imaginations that led to many misguided speeches and even some sermons and articles. Unfortunate. Uh, Kennedy was, of course, the first president elected who was not a Protestant but Roman Catholic, and this made our vastly Protestant, fairly biblically literate country at the time somewhat suspicious of a man who was loyal to Rome. Add to that, at the Democratic Convention, uh, he was elected in 1956 by 666 votes, and that did it. I mean, imaginations (laughs) just took off. Books were sold on that one. That really got the imagination going. He was elected president later assassinated by a shot to the head. A fatal wound, which is how the Bible described the death of the Antichrist. And I read as I researched this issue, there were some, many in fact, who believed that as President Kennedy lay in state in the rotunda of the Capitol, he would come out of his casket, rise again, and assert himself as the ruler of the world. Which, of course, never happened. Now, based on what we do know from John's revelation and from Daniel's vision, from Revelation chapter 13, which confirms the resurrection, I believe, of the coming Antichrist, imagine that scene. The world would be grieving somewhere around the midpoint of the tribulation over the loss of its greatest peace negotiator. A brilliant genius of a man who has led some European country to a place of national prominence, international prominence. His policies are being copied. His advice is being pursued on every hand. Only recently he would have solidified a European coalition, taking the reins of three countries whose leaders died, perhaps mysteriously, or disappeared. 
But he masterfully strengthened that coalition that revived empire by taking over. And the other kings have willingly and gladly granted him the highest rank in the coalition. His skill at leadership and diplomacy would be breathtaking, mesmerizing, reassuring. In a world that is going mad with the outpouring of what we have learned to be the wrath of God, the tsunamis, the earthquakes, the the diseases, the epidemics, uh, his presence will seem to calm everyone as if he is, in fact, capable of riding above it. But an assassin has gotten through. A madman with a sword who struck this great leader. Perhaps it was someone acting in revenge. We're not told who or, or why. We're only told that the Antichrist will be killed in cold blood. Now the world is mourning as he lies in state in some European embassy or castle Your guess is as good as mine. No doubt television cameras from networks around the world are trained on the coffin. And other cameras are trained on the tear-streaked cheeks of mourners who've lined up for miles to come and pay their last respects. Just imagine the literal fulfillment of this text. Suddenly, his eyes open and he takes a breath and he sits up. And and maybe he clambers over and out of the coffin and walks calmly to one of the cameras and announces to a stunned world that he is indeed their Messiah. He has defeated death. He has defeated the grave. He is the one who was dead, but now forevermore is alive. No wonder... John would write in Revelation 13, the latter part of verse 3, (laughs) and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Look at verse 4. We're told that they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast or the Antichrist, and they worshipped him. I mean, who wouldn't? Apart from the discerning grace of God... In the lives of those who've come to faith in Christ after the rapture, who are now living in the tribulation, dying uh, by, the, by the tens of thousands for their faith in Him, and it will only get worse. They perhaps are tested by this sight that they also see. Perhaps it's a, it's a challenge to their own faith, and apart from the discerning grace and their perseverance, as we'll study in our next session, they, they, would, they, would, they would give it up and then follow him. Maybe they're, they're struck by the doubting uh, reflected in, in John, the baptizer. You remember him? He's, he's incarcerated in a cell. He will soon be beheaded. He's going to die. And he sends his disciples to Jesus Christ uh, with a question. You know, ask him, are you the one or is there someone else we should be waiting for? Should we be looking for someone else? These will be tested when their side certainly doesn't seem to be winning. When the world is celebrating the victory of this king over death itself. And so they worship him. Would you notice 
how John kind of pulls back the curtain through inspired text and he tells us who they're really worshiping. Look at verse 4 again. They worshiped who? The dragon. We've already learned the dragon is Satan. Here's the raw truth. By worshiping the Antichrist, unbelievers will actually, in reality, be worshiping Satan. The power behind the Antichrist. Some people will fully understand it. Most will more than likely be simply deceived. Just as those unbelievers in Paul's day were deceived, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. And he said, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. In other words, thinking they are worshiping the God to whom they are sacrificing, they are in reality worshiping the demonic world which is impersonating their false God. Whether they comprehend it or not, they are giving their allegiance to the power behind their false religion. They and, listen, the world to come In this generation, when Revelation chapter 13 is fulfilled, in reality, the world will be dancing with the devil. You imagine. Many will go willingly as they blaspheme God and curse him. Like one European leader who said some time ago, and I quote, if the devil could offer a panacea for the problems of the world, I would gladly follow the devil. The world will one day have its chance to do it openly in the form of worshiping the false Messiah. And let me tell you, friends, this is the recognition that Satan has coveted since he fell. This is what he has longed for. A diversion of worship from billions who instead of worshiping the true God are worshiping him. This is his highest achievement. And how he will thrill to hear mankind chant their worship of the counterfeit Messiah. How he's going to be thrilled to know he has influenced billions of worshipers away from God unto himself. And notice what the world says in verse 4. Who is like the beast, the Antichrist? And who is able to wage war with him? These are rhetorical questions, by the way. Expecting the answer to come back, nobody's like the Antichrist. There's nobody like this Messiah. Nobody can wage war with him. How do you fight somebody you can't kill? He's the greatest so they will worship this one who was dead but now came back to life. I mean, how do you, how do you compare anybody to him? Oh, that, that other Messiah, that other Messiah. Yeah, he supposedly rose from the grave, but he did it in secret. And he, he evidenced himself only to a handful of, of people. What, did he have something to hide? Our Messiah has revealed himself to the world. You can imagine how deceptive this would be. And the world will be delirious with delight over the one who seems now to have the answer to everything. And perhaps mankind's great 
question. How can I get eternal life? Maybe it'll be through him. Because he seems to have eternal life. Friends, do you know what's been happening throughout world history? I agree with one author who put it in these terms. What's been happening throughout world history are simply dress rehearsals for this coming event. This coming leader. The human heart hungers for a visible God. It is ever ready to deify a leader who promises certainly spiritual realities. I believe that Satan throughout history has always had a man ready. He, he doesn't know, by the way, the moment of the rapture. He doesn't know when, when the ensuing tribulation will, will occur, when he can move forward with his agenda. He has been crafting and honing and perfecting He doesn't know any more than we know about the future. He is not omniscient. And so I would agree with with those who have said it seems in every generation he has had someone ready. On ready to go at any moment. He was ready with Caligula. You study the emperors and discover that. He was ready with Nero. In fact, in my research, I could preach a sermon on on the false Messiah, even in this man. And I can't because of time, but there there was quite a movement that he was going to come back to life. In fact, one appeared who looked just like him, claiming to be Nero, come back to life. And he led thousands of people in his deception to their death. Satan was ready. He was ready with Napoleon. He was ready with Robespierre. In the French Revolution. He was ready with uh, Mao. With his little red book that influenced a quarter of the earth's population. In his hatred of God. He was ready with Hitler. He was ready with Stalin. Puppet kings. Who sold their souls to war against Jesus Christ. Who would have gladly stepped forward to rule the world. But they were not God's timing. They were not God's choice. And Satan would literally chew them up and spit them out as only one more failed attempt. His frustration, ladies and gentlemen, has been growing now for centuries. He's ready at any time. Joseph Stalin's daughter would later talk about her father used by Satan to fight Christ and Christianity, literally martyr millions of Christians. On his deathbed, she described he did something peculiar. She she said that just before he died, he'd been unconscious, in and out, unable to move much at all. But suddenly he sat up in his bed. He looked up at the ceiling and he raised his clenched fists And shook them toward the ceiling. Fell back on his pillow. And died. His last act. Was an act of defiance. Against the savior. He hated. But he was worthless. In Satan's agenda. For he failed. He was not the one. In his bunker. The end of World War II, just days before he would take his own life, 
I have read how Adolf Hitler whittled away his time with close friends, his mistress, his key staff. The untold story until years later was that Hitler had been a man given over to the occultic underworld. He was an avid student of yoga. That word in the Hindu means yoke. Its intention is to yoke to the underworld, the spirit world. He was an avid student of hypnotism, astrology, Eastern occultism. Many believe him to have been, as I do, possessed by demonic forces to do things that can only be explained by the darkness of Satan's kingdom agenda against the Jew and the Christian, certainly a Christ and the world at large. One of his staff members there with him in his final hideaway was a man named Roshning, who described this recurring scenario in Hitler's final days when Hitler now, of course, is no longer a comrade of Satan, but a throwaway puppet king, no longer of use. I quote Roshning. We would hear Hitler yell for help. We would go in and see him seized with power that made him tremble so violently his bed shook. His lips would turn blue and he would drip with sweat as he would be whispering in terror. It is he. It is he. He is here. Whether he sensed Satan or Christ whom he hated, we don't know. But Satan was certainly through with him. He could be discarded. Listen to the truth about the final false messiah. Just as every, everyone bearing the spirit of Antichrist, they are only puppets. They are used as Satan's attempts to wrestle worship away from God. And this one will be his masterpiece. His magnum opus. But for those of us who believe in Christ, the Antichrist is not someone to fear. He's someone to pity. In fact, he will be revealed after we are gone. But like Judas Iscariot who did Satan's bidding and then took his life, so did Nero after him and, and Hitler after him. They danced with the devil and then died. And the horror of it is they will live in the company of those unbelievers and the underworld forever. Let me close our study today with a challenge and an invitation. For those of you who believe in Jesus Christ, let me give you a challenge again to be discerning. Even today, without the Antichrist to do his bidding, the Christian is in danger of being deceived, distracted by the enemy. Listen, for everything that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. There are counterfeit leaders, counterfeit preachers, counterfeit teachers. There are counterfeit churches. Revelation 3 describes them as the synagogues of Satan. They're basically teaching error. They, ha they have a steeple. They've got a cross. But they are the seat of Satan. Imagine the reality of that being revealed one day. There are counterfeit spiritual gifts. There are seducing spirits. There are doctrines of demons. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. 
There are false messiahs. There are false prophets who will arise and perform great signs, especially culminating in this final day we've been studying where Jesus Christ said they'll perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, even if they can the elect, which they cannot. Matthew 7 and Matthew 24. My question to those of you who believe when trouble comes, will it detract from your worship? Will it distract you from your walk? Will it divert you from your commitment to the true and living God? Even now, this is our challenge in a world with false messiahs and and antichrist agendas. So listen, my Christian friend, to the challenge of the Apostle Peter. Listen to these great words he wrote. The end of all things is near. I love that phrase. If Peter thought the end was near, what we can know for certain is that it is 2,000 years nearer. So it is really near now. We believe the end of all things is near. So what does that mean? Peter writes, the end of all things is near, therefore panic. Oh no, that's not what he wrote. (laughs) Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, that is knowing the days are At the end, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever is the gifted speaker, do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever is gifted in serving, do so As one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. So for the believer, let this discussion on last days call us to a pure way of living. Call us to a gracious love. Call us to hospitality. Call us to using our spiritual gifts in the body and for the sake of the gospel so that the body of Christ is blessed and the gospel is advanced. But along the way, no, as Peter said, in fact, he started out this way, let the truth about the last days call us to sound judgment. Be discerning. For you, perhaps... You are an unbeliever. Let me give you an invitation to deliverance. The Christian with a study like this is called to discernment. If you're an unbeliever, it is an invitation to be delivered. Listen, my friend, a counterfeit works well. Only because it looks so much like the real thing. That's how it works. It models The truth as much as it can. It uses religious terminology. It will even speak of Jesus. It will genuflect in a way to the Bible. To a steeple and a cross. It knows how to hush with a reverential tone at something profound. It loves to use the word spiritual. 
even though it is spiritually dead. It wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Listen, the antichrists of the world and the coming final antichrist, you study the antichrists of past eras that were ready and poised, you study this one as we have, and millions of people die for them. Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, died for you. So I invite you, after a study like this, to eternal deliverance. Don't follow the wrong Messiah. Even now place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Everybody else is a counterfeit. Only Christ, Peter wrote, is the one to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. 